Hey everyone, I'm Portia Flowers. Hey, and I'm Cynthia Dorsey. And this is Young, Black, and Brave. Hello, everybody. We are back with another episode of Young, Black, and Brave. Hey, Portia. Hey, my Cynthia. How are you? I am fine. I'm really excited about today because this is the first episode where we will be reviewing and taking one of our favorite Black classics through the Dorsey Flowers test. We are reviewing today Boomerang, the 1992 film Boomerang. I know you guys know Boomerang. I know you know it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Boomerang is about a successful executive and womanizer who finds his lifestyle choices backfiring on him when he meets his match and his new female boss. So, Portia, can you run us through who is on the cast and crew? Okay, so like Cynthia said, this is a 1992 film. It's actually a rom-com. Um, and it was, uh, the story was actually uh, conceived by Eddie Murphy himself. It, it stars Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Um, and he came up with the story, but the screenplay was written by Barry Blostein and David Sheffield, who were actually two writers on Saturday Night Live who worked with Eddie Murphy um, during his time on SNL. So uh, the three of them were able to put the story together. Eddie Murphy, uh, was able to secure Reginald Hudlin as the director on this film. Reginald Hudlin is uh, now a legendary director, writer, yes. producer. At that time, he was still um, fairly early in his career. Um, and he actually made his feature film directing debut in 1990 with House Party. Y'all remember House Party? Yeah. I know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that movie that came out during my childhood and changed my life. I was like, oh my God, okay. this is what it's like yeah. to be in high school, not realizing all them people were good and grown. Good and grown. <laughs> okay, old. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm thinking right now of... Uh, Full force, some dudes were full force. Right, right. They were very grown. No high school kids. Well, I don't know. I don't want to say no high school kids look like that. Many, most high school boys do not look like that. So, right. Anyway, I digress. Um, so, Boomerang was actually the second film that Reginald Hudlin ever directed. Um, after that, he went on to direct or produce numerous films, such as Baby's Kids. Yes. The Great White Hike, uh, The Ladies' Man, and most recently, Marshall, um, starring Chadwick Boseman, the late, yeah. great Chadwick Boseman. Um, he also directed uh, several television shows, including The Bernie Mac Show, The Office, Black Monday, and The Last OG. Um, in addition to his directing, he's also known for being an executive producer of the NAACP Image Awards for the past 10 years. Oh, and y'all know how we feel about the Image Awards around here. That's we had a, a very special episode <laughs> <laughs> going through all those awards. Um, and he also served as president of entertainment for BET from 2005 to 2008. So he has been around um, 
really contributing to um, pop culture for mm-hmm. African Americans here. Mm-hmm. Um, and most recently, he actually produced the 2020 Primetime Emmy Awards, which we just talked about. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, again, by most accounts, it really went well. It went better than what it could have been, considering it was a, a virtual award show. Um, so great job by Reginald Hudlin. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the cast. We have Eddie Murphy starring as Marcus, Robin Givens as Jacqueline, Halle Berry as Angela, David Allen Greer as Gerard, Martin Lawrence as Tyler. I mean, it's just a star-studded cast just right there. And all these people were, well, most of these people were fairly early in their careers. Mm -hmm. Um, Eddie Murphy had 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 several films by, by then, of course. Um, but Martin Lawrence was, was still considered a bit of a newcomer. David Allen Greer, uh, probably his biggest claim to fame up until that point was uh, in living color. But it's just amazing the number of people that are in this film yeah. that are still very relevant in Hollywood today. Yes. Um, uh, we also have Chris Rock in one of his earliest roles as Boney T. <laughs> um, what is he, like the male guy yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mailroom gossip um, yes yes got all the gossip uh tisha campbell as yvonne the nosy neighbor uh we have leela roshan as christy uh we also have uh kenny blank as little kenny and kanya and kizzy i think that's how you pronounce her name as kanya they played the two little kids um that were in um Angela's art class, mm-hmm. Halle Berry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, and uh, I'm not sure about Kanye and Kizzy, but Kenny Blank, I've definitely seen in different roles, and he yeah. uh, played the son in The Parenthood yeah. with uh, Robert Townsend. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so these are just, you know, oh, I'm make, make sure I wanted to mention John Canada, Terrell as Todd, and Leonard Jackson as the chemist. The mm-hmm. chemist who had the honor of smelling Miss Strange's <laughs> undergarments so that he could get the right scent for right. that perfume. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's just some of the cast, but I really want to make sure that we make mention of some of the legendary um, actors and actresses that filled out the rest of this cast, starting with Miss Strange, who I just mentioned, played by Grace. Jones, mm-hmm. the legend, the Syracuse, New York hometown right. legend. Syracuse yes, University I mean, too, as well. I well, I don't think she went to Syracuse University. They said um, she went. She was in the theater department. She graduated from OCC. Okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah, she's a Syracuse. Um, hometown legend, which is where Cynthia and I met in Syracuse. We yes. both went to Syracuse University. Um, but Grace Jones was born in Jamaica, um, and her she and her family immigrated to America and eventually settled down in Syracuse, New York, uh, where her father founded the Apostolic Church of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, after she, so she. Grew up in Syracuse 
and ended up graduating from college at Onondaga Community College. Uh, and soon after, she decided to move to the big city, New York City, and that's where she became a model. And she was discovered uh, and ended up working for various fashion houses, uh, such as Yves Saint Laurent, and appeared on magazine covers, um, including Elle and Vogue. Uh, in the late 1970s, she then began her musical career, becoming a star in the disco scene. And in the early 1980s, she released several top 10 singles, including Slave to the Rhythm and Pull Up to the Bumper, which you might remember hearing. <laughs> remember that scene when she left that restaurant yeah. and, you know, stormed out and she was walking to her limo. That song was playing, the instrumental, Pull Up to the Bumper. Um, and she also actually contributed to the soundtrack, the uh, Boomerang soundtrack, with a song called Seven Day Weekend. So she is just an all around, she can do it all as a performance artist, a singer, a model, a muse. She's just, and she's still going strong. She's still doing her thing. She's still fully Grace Jones. Mm -hmm. And her influence is still felt to this day. So if you like people like, Lil' Kim, Nicki Minaj, Lady Gaga, Cardi B, Beyonce, Madonna, Bjork, all those women bow down to Grace Jones, whether yeah. they know it or not. Yep. They are doing their own versions of Grace Jones. She right. was here first. So, and it's just, it's amazing uh, when you really, you know, start to look a little deeper into her career, what she was able to do and the unapologeticness of her of her life and her career, um, things that we kind of take for granted today uh, were actually quite difficult um, to be that shocking and that daring back then. Uh, and in a lot of ways, her character of Stranger is a bit of a send up of who she was, you know, like Grace Jones, almost playing Grace Jones. Mm -hmm. um, so that is Grace Jones. And we move now to Nelson who was the, the character that was coming up with these uh, commercials, these, these uh, promotional ideas for um, the perfumes. Yes. <laughs> and he had some really interesting ideas. Uh, he was played by the great Jeffrey Holder. Now, this man was a true artist. Mm -hmm. He was born in Trinidad, um, and he began his career actually as a dancer and a choreographer. Uh, he came to America and joined the Catherine uh, joined Catherine Dunham's dance school, nice. uh, where he ended up teaching folk dance, mm. which was quite significant. If you remember Catherine Dunham, she she was really big at introducing um, the wider public to these um, and and uh, uh, really um, African diaspora folk dances and traditions. Um, and, and making and kind of popularizing them. Mm -hmm. um, and he helped her with that. He then became a principal dancer with the Metropolitan Opera Ballet. Uh, and then he began, he began his film career in 1962 in a film called All Night Long, which was a British Fella. Ten years later, in what uh, became possibly one of his most well-known roles, he was cast as a henchman in the James Bond film, Live and Let Die. Wow. Um, during this time, he also continued uh, his dance career, 
choreographing and designing costumes for several productions uh, for the Alvin Ailey American Dance Company and the Dance Theater of Harlem. Uh, so just a, a renaissance man through and through. Um, and in 1975, he made history becoming the first black man to be nominated and to win the Tony Award for directing and costume design, honoring his work for the groundbreaking musical, The Wiz. I had no idea. I was shocked when I when I read yeah. that, that piece um, when I was doing some background info. I love The Wiz and just knowing that he had a hand in that was, you know, it's just, it's astounding some of the things that people have done in their lives um, and the things that, that they might be most known for or the thing that you know them for is only just a small fraction of what they're capable of. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, he became very popular um, as a spokesman for 7-Up. That's probably what a lot of people know him yeah. for. May, I, not so much me. I think that was a little before my time, but there's a lot of grown folks that are like, oh, he's the 7-Up guy. Um, and in 1988, actually, this, this might be very interesting to know. Um, he actually choreographed the opening credit sequence for the fifth season of the Cosby show. You remember that? Oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> that makes so yes, much sense. Yes. Yeah. It ma it matches his brand of how like it was just really abstract. I love that. I love that season five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so audience, y'all remember that season where it was the orchestral, uh, orchestral, <laughs> wait, orchestral um, <laughs> version of the Cosby Show theme song, and they were all dancing, and it was the whole cat. It was a whole thing. That's my favorite yeah, opening fabric. Sequence. Lots um, of fabric being yeah. used. Yeah, it was so nice. Yeah, and he did that. He was responsible for that. So. Definitely kudos for that. Um, so throughout his time, he was also a prolific photographer, art collector, author, composer, and painter. He actually won a Guggenheim Fellowship for his painting in 1956. Again, Renaissance man. He, he was doing it all from the beginning to the end. Um, and he was also married to uh, the great Carmen de Lavalade. I, I hope I pronounced her name right, for nearly 60 years until his death in 2014. Now, his wife, also prolific as a uh, groundbreaking dancer, choreographer, and actress in her own right, and she was actually the recipient of the Kennedy Center Honor in 2017. Um, so if you have time, definitely go look her up um, to, to learn a bit more about her life and her career. But that is Jeffrey Holder. Wow. Next, we have playing Lady Eloise. <laughs> Mark. Y'all already know what it is. Yes. <laughs> Mark is darling. Miss <laughs> Eartha Kitt. Miss Eartha Kitt. She was born, I believe, in 1927 in South Carolina under very humble beginnings. Um, but she spent her teenage years in Harlem, where she graduated high school. 
she then began her career as a dancer in the Catherine Dunham Company um, for several years before hitting it big as a singer. Um, and throughout the 1950s, she had several top 10 hits, including Say Bon and Santa Baby, which we'll probably be hearing a few short months around Christmas time. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's that Christmas starts early. Yeah. Um, <laughs> throughout the 1950s and 60s, she appeared on stage, screen, television, everywhere. You name it, she was there. And in 1960, she actually earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 1967, in perhaps her most well-known role, she took over the role of Catwoman um, in the Batman television show. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, several decades later, Halle Berry uh, played Catwoman in a uh, feature film. So uh, kind of honoring Eartha Kitt's um, uh, turn as Catwoman back in the 60s. Now, things were going really great for her career, but Eartha Kitt was not just an entertainer, she was an activist, and she made it a point to speak truth to power, and in some ways that, you know, she she made sacrifices. Her career in 1968, when she was invited to the White House, she decided to use that as an opportunity to speak up and speak out about the Vietnam War. Um, right there in the White House, which, you know, (laughs) which caused First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson, to burst out in tears. Mm. She did not appreciate hearing the truth about what was going on uh, with the Vietnam War and how so many young people were sacrificing for a cause that did not make sense. White woman tears. Um. (laughs) Well, there you go. There you go. So, yeah, Miss Eartha Kitt um, suffered for that greatly and it's widely believed that this was the cause of her becoming blacklisted and investigated by the CIA. So this, you know, quite serious repercussions. Um, she ended up leaving the U.S. and spent much of her time earning a living in Europe and Asia, uh, but she never stopped her activism for civil rights, for gay rights. Um, and HIV and AIDS causes. Uh, And she, of course, was able to maintain her entertainment career. And um, our generation probably knows her best as Lizzie Eloise in Boomerang. Um, It became an iconic role after, you know, a a long, strong career. Um, You know, but it's just amazing uh, just how just how uh, multifaceted Miss Eartha Kitt was. She was more than just the purring cat woman. She she had a lot of a lot of intelligence and a lot of heart. And uh, we really appreciate all that she did for for us and for the entertainment community. Yeah. We also have as um, as as Gerard's parents. <laughs> making an appearance <laughs> oh in a very God. pivotal scene. Mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Jackson played by John Witherspoon and B.B. Drake. Yes. 
John Witherspoon, we all know and love. We know him probably um, uh, most known for his roles in the Friday trilogy and uh, playing the father and uh, playing Pop in the Wayans Brothers um, uh, sitcom back in the 90s. And he recently passed away in October of 2019. Um, so RIP John Witherspoon. B.B. Yes. Uh, Drake is also a very well-known actress. I, I don't think that her name is as well-known, uh, but she's been in so many things. You definitely know her. Uh, you definitely recognize her face and her voice yes. when you hear it. Um, she's been in so many shows from Good Times to The Jeffersons, What's Happening Now, A Different World, Martin, Jamie Foxx Show, The Bernie Mac Show. She's also had uh, roles in films like Which Way Is Up, House Party, Jason's Lyric, How to Be a Player, Friday After Next. She's still going strong. So definitely shout legends. And finally, we have Mr. Melvin Van Peebles. Very short appearance as uh, the editor. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of an extended kind of conversation about whether or not they could see Strange's nipple. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I was yeah. like, okay, can we stop talking about that? <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so he was trying this commercial and they were in the editing room, um, Angela and Marcus, with Mr. Marvin Van Peebles. He is the father of Mario Van Peebles, who's probably most known for um, directing New Jack City, which also starred Chris Rock as Pookie in one of his earliest roles. Mm -hmm. um, Melvin Van Peebles, of course, is right as a writer, director, actor, composer, um, and perhaps best known for writing, producing, directing, and acting in what is considered the first black exploitation film. Sweet, sweet back, badass song in 1971. <laughs> nice. So we have legends on legends on legends in this film. I don't yeah. like legends for no like I don't know why this film is so packed, <laughs> so many amazing people, but I appreciate it. <laughs> and it's nice to see that community continue post the film they've been in other things together um martin and tisha campbell like this different um shows they all still came back together so i i believe that 90s crew was strong they were strong oh yeah yeah. 90s was like a renaissance time for, for black entertainment. We'll get into it a little later, but yeah, that that was something else to just kind of see all those people and, and realize all the different connections. You've seen them in other projects, yeah. Yes. Um, so let's talk about some fun facts. This film was also produced by Reginald Hutland's long-time filmmaking partner, his brother, Warrington Hudland. Warrington created the Black Filmmaker Foundation, BFF, which provides programs that address the institutional disenfranchisement of Black filmmakers and Black audiences. As a result of his effort, BFF has for more than four decades 
played a pivotal role in the emergence of the contemporary black film movement, which was given a shout out in the scene where Marcus is waiting for Jacqueline to show up for their date and show. So I don't know if you guys remember that he was calling 911 and everything waiting for Jacqueline. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you remember when, you know, uh, there were two people that kind of showed up um, that, that, that were trying to sell, I don't know, jewelry or something to Marcus while he was waiting for Jacqueline. Yep. Yep. Those were the husband brothers. Yes. They had a little cameo in that film playing those two dudes. And then if you remember, seeing the um uh what do you call the uh, what do you call it um the sign that's over the box office uh marquee you know the marquee yes thank yeah. you if you saw on the marquee it said uh fundraiser for for the black filmmaker foundation that was the little shout out Right. I love it. I love it. Like using your platform to get um, to get all of different organizations recognition. And I love it. Yeah. Um, according to director Reginald Hutland, Eartha Kitt was the hardest person to cast for the film as she was somewhat offended by her character's tone in the original scripts. Eventually, she accepted the role after some of the more tasteless jokes in the script were changed or removed. Portia talked a lot about her advocacy and and advocacy for women was something, you know, um, that she did as well. I think we all have seen that virtual clip of her talking about um, <laughs> needing, not needing a man. She was, uh, women's rights was definitely a part of her agenda as well. At the time, Boomerang, it was not critically acclaimed. But here's a quote from Reginald Hudlin. There was one infamous review of the film that summed up the ignorance of many critics. The movie was called a science fiction film because those writers didn't know about any successful black companies. They didn't know about Johnson Products or Johnson Publishing or Burrell Advertising or Uniworld Advertising or any black law firms or they were just ignorant, which they tried to pass off as wit. It was also frustrating for Eddie because he was stretching out, expanding the range of movies he was doing. But instead of applauding him for doing something different, they sneered. So that was a direct quote from um, Reginald Hutland. And it's, you know, it's really, um, it's good to kind of hear that part because I, as a kid, I remember it coming out and just kind of being like hyped about it. And well, maybe hype is too strong because I actually did not watch it. It was, it was a rated R film, so <laughs> I wasn't able to watch it when it came out, but I definitely knew when it was coming out and, um, and it was exciting, of course, to, to hear about a black movie. Uh, but also just not being aware of 
um, the challenges that that came along with with making a film like this and how not only a challenge to make it, but for people to understand and to get it. And part of these people include gatekeepers, um, such as critics who are responsible for helping to generate buzz and to encourage the film, to uh, encourage audiences to go watch the film. And um, it is interesting when, you realize that there's people who just do not understand black people to the point that they think that this is this is fiction fiction like right. science fiction right. it can't even be possible yes that's why it's important to have black critics i always say that on the show it's very important yeah and the, and the final fun fact you all may know this but um a tv series based on the film by the same name boomerang debuted on BET in 2019. It's produced by Lena Waithe and Holly Berry. Did you watch it, Portia? I have not, but I heard it's pretty good. Have you seen it? I've seen a couple of episodes. I couldn't really get into it, like, you know, but I will revisit it definitely. I just, sometimes if things don't capture my attention, like maybe episode one or two, then I go off to other things, but I'll try to revisit it. Yeah. I think I was just, you know, it seems to be a a big trend nowadays to take older films or older, whatever projects, and then reimagine them, remake them, revamp them. And it's just like, I, I guess, but I would also like to see original material. Yeah, same. It's almost like they try to like back into something that's already established and well known. If you love Boomerang, then you know maybe you'll love this thing because it's it's just like Boomerang, or you know this is a continuation of Boomerang decades later. But uh, sometimes it's so they they also try to make it their own to the point where it's, it's beyond recognition. So it's like, well, then you should have just made a, something completely different. You didn't have to use, <laughs> you didn't have to use these established, uh, known entities, properties, to do what you what you want to do. But then again, that's show business, and that's the business part, trying to get people to, to, uh, to support your your idea by giving them something somewhat familiar, I guess. Yeah. Well, let's get into Boomerang and unpack it a bit. What was your overall impression? What was it like watching the film now compared to the first time you saw it? Well, okay. So I was too young to watch it in the theater when it first came out, but I did watch it um, when I was, you know, probably in my teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I'm sure a lot went over my head when I first watched it. Uh, I can't remember the last time that I saw it, though. I, I know I was an adult when I saw it, but this time it, I, I, it felt brand new watching it. There were certain things that I, I forgot about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now as a full-grown adult, I really do appreciate this film more than I thought I did. I was afraid that it I would... You know, there would be a lot of cringeworthy um, things in the film. And there were, there definitely were some cringeworthy <laughs> moments, uh, which we'll get into later. 
but um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be considering this movie is uh, almost 30 years old now. Mm. So I liked it. Yeah. What about you? What did you think? Well, I, uh, I just remember lots of times my, my parents wouldn't let me watch this. So, um, but I do remember lots of times when they were watching TV and they would send me to bed, I would sit on the stairs in my home and watch the reflection of the movie on their faces. So like the lighting and everything. And I was always drawn to pick to, to cinema lighting. And so then seeing it in my teens, seeing how well lit the black people were, I can make that connection. It's actually, I just love to see that chocolate skin on screen, well lit, lit, well-dressed. Everything is, is aesthetically pleasing to me about this film. Um, but I didn't really get it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I didn't really get the content of it, the storyline. I didn't understand it because that wasn't my reality. When I oh. went to undergrad, though, um, I was really big into going to the used uh, DVD store, and um, I would get DVDs of all the black films. And so I had gotten Boomerang one day, and I watched it again. And I was highly upset by it. I was like, oh, my God, this is too much. Like, you know, um, my my Christian upbringing of, you know, attitude about everything. I was just like, oh, no, this is gross. This is nasty or whatever. So it's interesting how as a teen I was looking at images and how pleasing images were and not content and then um not that many years later I was looking at the content and the storyline not liking it um as an adult watching it I love this film it's one of my favorites um I love um I love the storyline. I love the flip and roles, um, okay. um, in gender roles, and you know, just basically calling out um, the objectifying of women in a lot of um, stories. It was nice to see that flipped, and ha- seeing the male character having having to deal with his own ideas of women in his in the backlash of how he has treated women throughout his life so i i really appreciate that um so when you said we should watch this i was like okay watched it again and i still love it i watched it again at 37 years old and i still love it i have appreciation for it um it's definitely a dvd i still have and own i'm glad that is accessible now on Netflix for everybody. And I hope to revisit it when I'm older, maybe like mid late forties and, and have a different um, outlook on it. And that's the thing with, um, you know, films is that those films that, you know, we carry with us and, and age with us um, and mature with us, our, outlook on them changes so i'm interesting to see how i would view it at an older age absolutely 
Absolutely. It's it's interesting. I really appreciated that that bit about, you know, as we get older, our outlook kind of changes. It's like we're in conversation with these with these pieces, you know, whether it's music, whether it's film, television, whatever. Um, how you interpret it changes um, according to your own, you know, you bring your life experiences with you um, when you kind of consume these these uh, pieces. Mm-hmm. And you know, not only that, it's it's the culture that it that surrounds it. So it's the culture in which it was developed under, and then the culture that you're in when you're when you're watching it or you're listening to it. Um, and it's interesting, some of the things that you might have been okay with when it was first, you know, when it first came out versus things that you might not be okay with or vice versa um, when you watch it much later. So it is interesting to see what kind of comes, what kind of comes out over the years. Um, so that brings us to kind of the next thing. Uh, and we already touched on it a little bit, is just this black entertainment renaissance of the 90s that this movie came out under. The movie came out in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just one of so many what are considered now to be classic films, black, you know, classic black films. Um, and let's just go through just some. Um, Waiting to Exhale, Malcolm X, Bad Boys, uh, how Stella got her groove back mm. Friday, how to be a player. Uh, some might not consider how to be a player classic. <laughs> <laughs> a thin line between love and hate. Don't be a menace. What's love got to do with it? Boys in the hood, poetic justice. You know, some of these films were directed by Spike Lee and, um, and John Singleton, the late mm-hmm. great John Singleton. Uh, it's just, amazing how many of these films that that you know if you just say the title you know exactly who was in the movie what the plot was you probably watched it more than once you know they they all came out around the same time yeah and if you know are there any films uh that were your favorite back in the 90s black was now considered a black classic oh yeah um i loved i absolutely loved the five heartbeats like my favorite film ever um but poetic justice by far like i will watch that now over and over and over again i love poetic justice Mm-mm. what about you yeah um let's see well i think for me i'd have to say um bad boys i really like bad boys um, but I think waiting to exhale, I mean, it's, first of all, the reason why I'm having such a difficult time, because a lot of them are my favorite. It's hard to pick one, but I'm going to go ahead and say waiting to exhale, at least right now, um, okay. because it was just so, I mean, it was so grown and I was not grown and I was just reading something on social media and they were uh, they pointed out a scene in a particular film where it was this young lady putting on makeup and she saw it at such a young age and it was, it was uh, very defining for her. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she, she used that as a, as um, 
a conversation starter just to say, you know, what what movies or what scenes in movies have been like almost informative for you, defining for you? Like she, like for her, that scene was, oh, this is how you put on makeup. This is how you get ready for a date, you know, for instance. So for like waiting to exhale, it was almost like, oh, this is how you move through life as a black woman. Mm. This is how you deal with relationships. These are the different, you know, situations and scenarios. There's four black women and they all have very different lives and things going on in their lives. And so, you know, this is how my life might be. It might be a combination of all four or, you know, maybe I might be a Savannah. Maybe I might be a, a Bernadette. I don't know. So it was. It was just um, very um, uh, defining. There's another word I'm looking for, but I'll just say it was very defining for me as a black girl becoming a, a black woman. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, and yeah, we, hey. Maybe we might run that through the Dorsey Flowers test one day. Yeah. Yeah, I love I like I mean, all of the films you listed are great. Um but just thinking about who I was when these came out, you know, sneaking to watch Poetic Justice and I know the whole five R beats movie, frontwards, backwards, <laughs> that is mm-hmm. my favorite. So I really appreciate what they did during this season. I really do. It's like and and it's not going anywhere like it's here it stays it's sticking with us that's why everybody is so excited that you know their old favorite movies are coming to streaming platforms so that's right kudos yeah that's right and again you know it i said it's the black entertainment renaissance not just black film renaissance but we were seeing black folks flourishing on television as well um you know we had shows like the arsenio hall show which was like you know, the at one point it was bigger than the Tonight Show, which was like the the late night show to go to. Um, Arsenio Hall show surpassed that for a short time. Um, Martin, again, you know, we we talked about how some of the actors that we that we see, some of the cast members in Boomerang, also appearing in other projects together. Um, Tisha Campbell and Martin Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Um, going on to star in Martin and David Allen Greer having a couple of guest spots in Martin yeah. as well. Uh, Living Single, Moesha, Rock, and Living Color, Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Family Matters. I could keep <laughs> going. The Wayans Brothers, all of these shows were out during the 90s. Um, and it's amazing how many sitcoms, again, classic sitcoms. And, you know, last week when we were talking about, I think it was last week, um, or last episode, um, last two episodes, I'm sorry, uh, when we've been talking about the Emmys and, you know, all these black firsts, especially in the comedy category. And then, again, with Shit's Creek kind of sweeping that comedy, uh, all the comedy awards, which is great, but that also means that there were a lot of black people who did not get recognition. And when you think about these sitcoms back in the nineties that never got recognized, right. that never got nominations, that never, you know, not even getting invited to the show. Right. Um, it's, it's wild. It's wild. Ah, 
anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are some of your favorite TV shows from the 90s? From the 90s. Um, hmm. I... So I my parents were definitely older. So we wasn't watching no Martin. My mother wasn't having it. Um I didn't get into Martin until later in life. Um but I really like Sister Sister. I really did. Um uh let's see. I love the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I know the Cosby show ended in the early 90s but that was my favorite show of all time um and when did 227 end because i remember i know it started like in 85 or so but i remember it still came on because my dad was still watching it um and it was new episodes there there might have been um maybe a very short overlap if it didn't end in 89, maybe it ended in 90 or 91, but I don't think it got in, you know, two into the 90s. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, those are those are some of my favorites. So the ones um, I would say definitely in the 90s was Sister, Sister, watched all the time, Family Matters, and Fresh Prince. Those are, like, the three I would say I watched all the time in the 90s. What about you? Girl, I know your parents didn't let you watch Martin, but I don't know. I don't know if I can say my mama let me, but I watched it. <laughs> I watched Martin, and so did my classmates. I just remember coming to school. You know, I was in middle school at the time, and we would come to the cafeteria, and that would be the thing that we talked about because Martin used to come on on Thursday nights, so Friday afternoons during lunch. We were just, you know, reciting lines back to each other. Yeah. <laughs> Again, probably too young to watch that stuff, but we were, it, that was, that was good TV viewing for us. Mm-hmm. We loved Martin. Um, I also love Living Single. Um, again, you know, at the time, just uh, kind of similar to Waiting to Exhale, seeing these black women and black men and kind of learning from them as much as I'm being entertained I'm also learning so this is what it's like to be um, a black woman of the 90s this might be what it's going to be like once I get to be their age and you know I don't know maybe I'll be a lawyer maybe I'll be you know into publishing maybe I'll uh, do whatever Sinclair and Regine were doing (laughs) right yeah Um, so I and I and it still holds up for me um to this day, with is particularly with Living Single, I could definitely watch a marathon of Living Single. Um, and yeah, again, I, I wish that these shows would have been would have been given their just due mm-hmm. during that time. Um, but I'm so glad that people are, um, you know, some some people are recognizing them for what they are now. So recently. Um, Friends has been in the news because I think it's been 25 years since it debuted. And so they were going to do this big reunion on HBO, one of the HBO channels. Um, And of course, coronavirus kind of altered those plans a little bit, but there's been a lot of, um, a lot of effort towards trying to recognize um, the anniversary of friends. And, you know, with that, 
there's a lot of people that are realizing that actually living single was first. And right, friends was based right. off of living single. Mm-hmm. They created that, you know, basically making the white version of living single. And as we know, you know, whenever white folks do stuff, that, that tends to be more profitable, that, that tends to get more attention. They got the nominations that, you know, Living Single did not. They got the money. They're, I remember when Friends was on, and I think towards the end, they were getting paid a million dollars each episode. Each friend was yeah, getting a million dollars yeah, per episode. Yeah. Like, it was wild. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I appreciate that, you know, things are starting to come back around and people are remembering these shows that were highly influential. And many of these people are still in the game to this day. Jamie Foxx is still a factor in Hollywood. So it's it's just great to see not only these shows hold up, but also recognizing that the stars of these shows um, are still continue to be uh, major factors in in Hollywood, like Martin Lawrence, like uh, Queen Latifah, like uh, Will Smith, and mm-hmm. and the Wayans Brothers and Jamie Foxx. So, uh, yeah, very much appreciate that time on television. Um, now we have, if we're going to talk about the 90s and entertainment and especially black people we gotta speak about the music scene um and r&b was at that time one of the biggest genres of music mm-hmm. i don't know if r&b is is considered to be that big right now i think technically hip-hop is the biggest genre um but at that time hip-hop was still trying to gain ground and gain respect to be honest um, not that many people wanted to be associated with hip hop, but R and B for sure. And during that time, it was all about Teddy Riley, um, all about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, and all about L A and Babyface. Yeah. If you wanted a hit, you wanted <laughs> to work with one of those three <laughs> sets of producers. And it just so happened that um, Boomerang, the soundtrack. Um, was pretty much done by L.A. and Babyface. They wrote and produced most of the music that was on the soundtrack. Um, And at that time, especially in the 90s, um, movie soundtracks were really big, particularly for Black films. Not so much nowadays. I'm not sure why. Um, But during that time, if you had a Black film, you definitely had a soundtrack. That soundtrack was pretty good. Yeah. So just uh, to refresh people's memories, the soundtrack to Boomerang was uh, not only good, it was um, it sold a lot of records. It peaked at number four on the Billboard 200 and number one on the Billboard R&B album chart. Mm-hmm. And there, it actually produced several singles, um, including Hot Sex, by a tribe called Quest, Seven Day Weekend by Grace Jones, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, I Die Without You by PM Dawn, which is one of my favorite songs on the soundtrack. Um, it also introduced to us living legend Tony Braxton. Yes. 
oh my gosh, I remember when I first saw her um, with, uh, she did a duet with Babyface, Give You My Heart. Mm -hmm. And I was like, who is that black lady with that short cut? (laughs) That short haircut, which by the way, Tony Braxton and Halle Berry, like nobody, uh, well, not enough people in my opinion, talk about the hair trends of the 90s, particularly that short cut that they popularized. I love it. Um, So yeah, so Tony Braxton did the duet with Babyface, and then she also had her own solo single on the soundtrack, um, Love Should Have Brought You Home, uh, which I read was written and inspired by that scene where Halle Berry uh, confronts um, Eddie Murphy's character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, mm-hmm. when he came home late and she was like, love should have brought you home last yep. night. Yep. Yes. And, you know, of course we cannot overlook one of the biggest, well, actually the biggest, it was the number one single of 1992, which was, drumroll please, End, <laughs> end of the Road by Boys to Men. That's right. Mega 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 song it ended up holding the number one spot on the billboard hot 100 for 13 consecutive weeks breaking elvis presley's previous record Mm-mm-mm-mm. huge huge deal yes. as a matter of fact um it also won grammys this song won grammys for best r&b performance by a duo or group uh with vocals and these category names are crazy best r&b performance by a duo or group with vocals won that grammy and it also won best r&b song so quite quite an accomplishment um just with the soundtrack alone yeah are there any songs on this soundtrack that were your faves oh my gosh my my parents (laughs) this all goes back to down memory lane my first cd they brought for me was um tony braxton's self-titled album so love should have brought you i i know i love that song i absolutely love that song um boys the men in general is my favorite boy group i'm i'm obsessed i know every song so yes this is this soundtrack was amazing um and I, you know, I would would be remiss without saying everything Babyface touches is like gold. You understand? Know it's yeah. so good. Like even the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack, like amazing. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, this is a really good soundtrack. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a few songs on there, if any, are duds on the soundtrack. It, it was great. Everything worked. All right. So let's just talk about um, these characters a little bit and black men of the 90s tropes. So we know Eddie Eddie Murphy is Marcus. He's an alpha male, an ebony man, a womanizer. We know this because he has his own thing about bringing women over, whining and dining them going back to their place sleeping with them and then not speaking to them again um would it 
what are your thoughts about these type of men during this season? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting um, because to me it was, um, yeah, it, it, it was a bit, how do I put this? Stereotypical in a way because it's like, okay, this is a movie about a guy who starts off being a womanizer and then a woman changes him and he becomes a, a good guy. But at the same time, it's like, how often at this time did we see black men in this, you know, in this light where they could have that arc, where they could have that opportunity to start off one way and end up another? Um, and not just be a womanizer, but he also is like, you know, the leader of the pack. He's that alpha male. And, you know, like they, you could tell they put effort into making sure that the hair, the outfits, the, you know, the, the setting, the environments that they were in all spoke to, you know, just how, how accomplished this man was like even his apartment is like clearly you cannot own this apartment in New York City unless you are successful at what you do um you know so there was this aspiration kind of uh you know level to him um that they created so it was you know it was good and bad but or maybe I shouldn't paint it as a good and bad thing but it was you know it was, it was uh, levels to it. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think much has changed in how men are depicted in film. I also think that this man definitely exists in society, so... Once again, you know, if you're mirroring, if art is mirroring life, then there are men like Marcus. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we have two other um, male characters to talk about. Gerard, who was played by David Allen Greer. He's a beta male. He's uptight. That whole nice guy finishes last sentiment is definitely his picture would definitely be right next to that. Um, (laughs) And then Tyler, played by Martin Lawrence, angry black man, um, paranoid, but he's got a point to be paranoid. It's always some validity in what he's saying. Um. I don't know. I didn't even really think of Tyler being angry. I thought a lot of that was sarcasm. I don't know. Maybe I misread that. Yeah, I think, um, I don't think that he was necessarily joking. And I think it was, it was played in a comedic way, but I don't think the character was, was uh, joking when he was, talking about like you know a a lot of his thing was everything is racial I can see it everybody else can't you know the way this this waitress is talking to us that's racist the way that that this uh uh pool table is set up with the you know with the white ball and it and and the game is not over until the black ball goes into the pocket that's racist you know I I think he wholeheartedly 
felt like that. Um, but it was kind of portrayed in a way where it was like, okay, he's like, now we would consider him to be labeled as Hotep today. You know what I mean? Right. You're right. Um, You're right. Yeah. So I think that, you know, in, it, it, he could be labeled as an angry black man, but again, you know, angry black man, angry black woman, it's, a lot of times there's something to actually be angry about. <laughs> there is something valid to, to some of their points. They just have the audacity to voice it and to call everything out instead of just, you know, letting things slide like most people do. Um, and then for Gerard, he was just, you know, he was kind of on the opposite end of that. He Every time Tyler said something, Gerard was always like, why do you have to do that, man? Right. Why do you have to say that? And then his Just parents are the polar opposite. His parents are the polar opposite from him. Yeah. <laughs> so we do find out that um, Gerard went to private school. His father mentions that sarcastically. Um but he just seems to be trying to separate himself from his wild parents. He's so embarrassed by them. Yes. He's so embarrassed. And, you know, even Marcus is trying to, like, tell him, listen, you know, cut them some slack. They're your parents. They, you know, let them be. Um, until, you know, that, that funny scene where the parents come out of the bathroom and you realize they had they had some grown folks time in the bathroom. <laughs> Marcus is like, okay, I get it now. I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but you know, I also wonder, uh, you know, as I was talking about how influential in a lot of ways shows like Living Single and movies like Waiting to Exhale was to me as a young, as as a black girl and and as a young black woman, um, giving me examples of what it might be like to be a grown black woman. I wonder how many black boys, um watched this film and were heavily influenced by Marcus Gerard and Tyler. Yeah. And just some of the things, question. especially Marcus. Yeah. Like, it's just, I'm, I'm just very curious, you know, even with um, Chris Rock's character kind of almost living vicariously through Marcus because the reputation that he had was, you know, you get all the girls, you, you know, you got this job, you got this money, you're the ebony man. Like, you know, we're we're rooting for you. We're counting on you. We need you to seal the deal. And uh, I think there were probably a lot of black men who who might have either saw you know seen themselves as a market type. You know, if they do say so themselves, mm-hmm. or aspire to be seen as you know this suave, cool, good looking, you know, always get the girl kind of kind of guy. So, right. Right. Um, yeah. What about the black women? So, um, again, we had Angela played by Holly Berry. She's a girl next door, sweet, kind. She's an artist. Um, and then you have Jack, Jacqueline played by Robin Givens. She's the alpha woman. She's a man eater type of woman and also a businesswoman, independent and and so forth um what do you think about angela and jacqueline um i thought they were interesting um 
you know, again, this is a film that was um, created by men, written by men, directed right, by men. Right, right, right. Um, it definitely um, has has men in it at its center. Uh, so it's not surprising that you have these two women who are the love interest for Marcus kind of take on these these tropes of being the girl next door, the sweet girl next door versus the you know, the the tough, no nonsense um, woman that every guy wants to be with, and she's uh, she's like a trophy. Um, but at the same time, what it, it was a nice twist that they gave to Jacqueline, who considered that that trophy mm-hmm. to be like, I know, like it was almost like she was like, I know I'm a trophy, I know I'm a catch. Um, right. But you know what you may not know is that I'm just like you. I'm going to play you better than you think you can play me. I'm going to turn it around. You're, you know, like even that time when she came over to his house and he, you know, he set it up all nice. He cooked this meal and, um, you know, he, he thought he was just going to wine and dine her and get her in bed. And she came over kind of dressed casually and, you know, not really paying attention to what he had to say because she wanted to watch the game. And he was annoyed by that <laughs> and because eat pizza. The, and he pizza, yes. And yeah. then you know he was like, "Oh, I think I'm gonna get some espresso. Do you want some?" She was like, "No, no, thanks." And then as soon as he gets up, she's like, "Oh, can you grab me a beer while you're right, up?" Right, right. Didn't even look at him, still watching the TV. <laughs> he was just like, "Oh my gosh, right? I can't believe I'm being treated like this." <laughs> but this is probably how he's treated many other women he can't believe that he's being treated the way that he treats other people yes. other women um so you know and to that extent i did appreciate that uh i i certainly could not then and i can't say that i can relate now to a character like jacqueline mm-hmm. um <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just not my style uh, but angela is some someone that's probably more relatable to me um, someone who may be overlooked at first, yeah. Um, but then you realize, oh, she might actually be the person that you want to get to know. There's there's some depth to her, um, and she actually cared about Marcus as opposed to <laughs> Jacqueline, who who may be just saw as a prize herself. You know, yeah. She Jacqueline kind of lost interest in him until. She saw Marcus kind of get his feet back under him after he was with Angela. And now Jacqueline's like, oh, yeah, you, you look good to me now. Let's get back together. Right. I, yeah, I, I, I definitely fall in the Angela category for most things, <laughs> not just like <laughs> romantic relationships, but like even in social groups. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know. I, I do feel like women I'm, I think I feel like men justifying a man like Marcus justifying why he treats women a certain way is because he thinks that women are like Jacqueline. Um, I think a lot of men feel like women are sneaky and doing underhanded things. At least this is what they say. You know, and this justifies them acting a certain way. So, um, 
I think, you know, this is reflective of men writing this and how they view women. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right. So, you know, it's interesting to see how all of these different characters kind of play out. Um, but just even looking at this collectively, this film was actually pretty awesome, just in the Black excellence of it all. Um, you know, even from the, the company that they were in, which I wasn't 100% sure what kind of business it was. Uh, like, I know they did, like, marketing stuff. Um, and, of course, you know, they were they were doing a lot of perfume ads. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were in the beauty business. But uh, it was just amazing to see just this all-black in a place of business. Yes. From the yes. top to the bottom, from the people who were at the front of the of the um boardroom all the way down to Chris Rock and him pushing the cart and delivering mail to, to each of the offices. Um you know, I didn't catch the name of the company at first. Um it wasn't until like I didn't realize that it even had a name until it got a Acquired by Lady Eloise, where they were switching out the, the name of the building. Or, I'm sorry, the name of the company with mm-hmm. the um, placard for um, for Lady Eloise. Um, so, you know, I guess technically now it was being run by a board in Paris. Um, so maybe not necessarily black owned, but it's still very much a black organization with all those people there. And one of the things that I thought was really, really cool was, um, I, I don't know, that I guess like an establishing shot um, or sequence at mm-hmm. the very beginning. Uh, so a lot of times you'll see films kind of set the stage by showing people walk through something. Um, you know, they're in New York City, so you would, I think the, the natural thing would be to have somebody, your, your star walk down the street and you can see all of New York City and the hustle and bustle. Instead of doing that, they had Marcus walk through the building. Yeah. And so what that did was it established that this is a black environment. This is this we're telling the story of a black man who is fully centered in a black community. Right. Um, which I thought was so clever. Um and it tell it told you everything that you needed to know just with him walking by and everybody saying, Hey, Marcus, hi, Marcus, and then blah, blah, blah. You realize that he, you know, he, he is an important figure in this company. He knows a lot of people. He's been around for a while. He's successful. You can see how he's dressed. Um, you can see how everyone else is dressed, um, that they're all professionals too. And I, I thought that was just a really, um, really good and a really important visual to just kind of, set the stage for what we're about to watch very important it just speaks to like what i was seeing as a teenager and how aesthetically gorgeous the film is even from layla rashawn's character walking her dog she was dressed to the t walking her dog Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's just it was it was just visually stunning everybody's working everybody's being paid nobody's begging nobody is 
um, shooting, you know, it's none of that that we we could see in film. At, you know, these um, these I guess stereotypical um, way in which people write black people a lot of times. Um, we don't see that, and it I was um, it made me. I guess proud as a, a kid or something to look forward to like oh I'm gonna get that hat or I'm a, I'm going to dress like um Jacqueline or I'm going to do art like Angela like it was something for someone of my age to look forward to yeah uh, yeah I mean you know again they they had such a rich um but I felt like they were able to create such a rich world and to be able to do that with a, with an all black cast, like there were hardly any non-black in this film. Um, yet it felt like a fully developed world. And I think that was, that spoke volumes, um, you know, for people to understand that black people can live whole lives from right. beginning to the right. end, top to bottom, without having other people have significant roles in, in that or, or, you know, have, have significant um, importance in that. Um, and so, you know, and, and there were some interesting characters in this in this film. Again, we have Stranger, we have Lady Eloise, we have um, Jeffrey Holder's character, you know, and in uh, in other people's hands, I'm convinced that those characters would have been uh, cartoonish, possibly, you know, uh, dangerous, so to speak. Right. Um, you know, but the fact that they were grounded in this world and that there were other black people to balance them out, help them from not becoming stereotypical or not becoming harmful. Um, so, you know, for me, I think that's one of the many reasons why we need to continue to see more more films, more TV shows, more more things with uh, with majority, if not all black people in there to help drive home the point that black people are not a monolith. Um, and it's not fair to pin everything on just one black person. When you only have one black person in a cast, they have to be all things to all black people. And that's just not. That's not realistic. Yep. Agreed. I also want to point out New Orleans. Yes. And <laughs> it was just, I remember when I first saw the film, almost, well, maybe after I first saw the film, almost kind of being like, and reflecting on it, like, uh, I feel like I saw New Orleans, like, what, was New Orleans in this film? Like, I just remember not quite understanding, and then, of course, when I got older, I watched it, and I was like, yeah, so I don't think we saw New Orleans, but we were in, you know, the intention was to, not imply, but, you know, they were supposed to be in New Orleans for this work trip, and I think what, what I finally landed on was, just the fact that, and I think we mentioned this um, in, in a previous episode, the significance of placing these Black people in a place that's not normally shown in film. A lot of times you see Black people in L.A., you see them in New York. 
mm-hmm. and not too much in between. Although um, maybe in the last ten years or so, black folks are in Atlanta now. Um, but to have this film, it's, you know, these people are in New York, but then to have them go to the second location of New Orleans, I thought was pretty cool. And for New Orleans to be New Orleans, with you know, it, it's such a unique space. It has such a unique culture. It 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 has its own music. Um, it's a black city for sure. And so, you know, even when they they landed in New Orleans, they still were being depicted in a very black environment. You didn't see them walking around. You saw them in the um, in that club, listening to that jazz music and dancing. Right, he was with, in a room full of black folks. Right. You know, like if it was a different director or, you know, different type of situation, they might not have had that. They might not have taken that opportunity to say, yeah, even though we're in a different city, we're still black and we're still going to be, you know, with black people. This is what it looks like to be black executive, but right. still, you know, connected to your people. Yeah. Um, and. Um, Angela had a really good quote about, and I can't remember about New Orleans, but basically saying New Orleans is for love. And it, you know, because Marcus thought it was like, uh, just like some other city. She's like, no, this is it. This is the place. And that resonated with me because that's how I feel about New Orleans in general. I think it's a beautiful place, not just for art. Not just for music, not just the culture, but for to be loved and to love freely, you know, in a, in in a beautiful environment. So it was nice. It was nice that they went there. That the hotel with that um, god awful <laughs> uh, wallpaper on the walls really reminded <laughs> me of like you know like a french boutique sort of hotel so they even though we didn't like see the essence of the city um you felt the essence of the city especially like you said when they were dancing and at the listening to the jazz and then they go back to this you know french-esque looking hotel um we definitely felt the essence and and it it was the day that they first you know slept with each other so um you know we you can equate a shift in them as Marcus and Jacqueline by being in New Orleans so yeah yeah all right let's talk about um now that it's 30 this 30 years later since Boomerang um first graced our lives um what do you think has aged well and what didn't i would say the first thing that stands out to me as something that didn't age well um and i'm not sure if i well i definitely didn't catch it when i first saw it uh when i was young but it just really stood out like uh, a sore thumb to me was the uh, blatant transphobia and homophobia mm. um, that that came out several times. Um, you know, again, it's 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 good to go back to particularly what we consider to be classics right. uh, to watch them again and just to kind of 
and and again to to point that you made earlier um you know just how you can gain an appreciation for something um as you get older and how as you gain life experiences and and things start to connect um but also you know you can you can gain an appreciation for something but also recognize things that um you know maybe maybe you don't appreciate right um that were okay at that time because it was that time um i think it's good to kind of see things and cringe at it later on because it shows growth on your part absolutely and it shows growth on you know in the culture at large too like it would be a shame if we saw this film 30 years later and you know didn't cringe when for instance Tyler Gerard and Marcus are sitting around at the table talking about some movie um and and I guess there was a woman and all of a sudden she had a penis and they were like, ew, gross. And right, you know, right, right. That's something that was acceptable at that time. And they actually talked for an extended period of time about they that. They did. That was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. And I can imagine that, you know, in the theaters, people laughed at it because it was acceptable to laugh about. Um, but today, no, that, that certainly wouldn't fly. I would hope that wouldn't fly. And, it made me feel uncomfortable when I saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Are there any other things that stood out to you as far as like the homophobia and transphobia? I would say when um, Tyler had said Jacqueline is a lesbian because she hadn't had sex with Marcus yet, as if her sexuality determined, like, is determined by if Mar- how fast Marcus could sleep with her. Um, right. It that was to me. I was just like definitely an eye roll moment. Um, but again, I I feel like it's um a sentiment men have. Like if I if you can't get a woman to do what you want, um, on your time, then something's wrong with that woman. You know what I'm saying? Like she uh-huh. doesn't have agency uh-huh. over her own body or her life, and so that's problematic. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, are there any other things that you think may have uh, not aged so well? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think Eloise and Lady Eloise and Strong J gave me the creeps. Um, I, <laughs> I, they, they just give me the creeps now at this age. I think... You know, it, men have this notion that older women are like Lady Eloise and they want them. And, and, you know, some women might, but it's not all women. And, you know, um, so, you know, her sleeping with a younger man and, like, purring at him. Well, I love Eartha Kitt, though, guys. I do love her. But, like, purring at him and, like, overly sexual and, you know the people in her camp setting it up so that she could do this. Like it was just not okay. (laughs) Regardless, it was, you know, it's a, it's still a great, um, character and character work that Eartha Kick did, but it's just problematic. It's so problematic. Um, and then, 
Strong J just showing her vagina openly at that dinner. <laughs> um, telling Marcus, like, you want, you don't want this pussy. You know, like, he kept saying it over and over and over. It's just, it just seemed exaggerated. Like, her, her character is really exa- written in an exaggerated format. Yeah. Uh, definitely Strange was, um, was a bit of an acquired taste, um, <laughs> and, and certainly, a, an exaggeration of, of Grace Jones, the, the actual person. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear from Grace Jones, like what parts of Strange were actually her and what wasn't, right, right. <laughs> or, you know, had she ever found herself in, in similar positions where she was just like. You know, I'm going to say this in front of you and everybody else. Right. <laughs> it was on my mind. I almost feel like Grace Jones would do something like that, but I don't know. <laughs> um, but um, for Lady Eloise, I think I see her a bit differently. I think for me, she uh, she's a different type of mature woman. Um, we don't we don't really see that a lot, especially for black women where, you know, she's supposed to be elegant and, you know, she's, we think that she's wealthy. She looks like she's wealthy. She's in this nice looking house. Looks like she got money. Um, we think at first that she owns uh, Lady Eloise, but then we find out later she's just kind of like a figurehead or a spokeswoman or something. Um, she doesn't actually run, run the, the company. Um, but you know, she, she sets her sights on Marcus and she decides that she wants to get with him. She wants, she wants the Marcus experience. She might've heard his, heard about his reputation before. So she wanted to try it From out. Bony T. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Bony T might've told Lady Eloise what's up. She said, all right. And, uh, and Marcus was, you know, Marcus was down. Marcus came over and, and Lady Eloise was very, uh, I thought she was she was smooth with it, but she also was very blatant with it. Like you know, I am seducing you. <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to feed you, right. and then I'm going to bring you into my bedroom, and I'm changing into my lingerie, and I'm gonna clap, and the lights are gonna turn off. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was you know, and and so she. To me, I just kind of saw this as this is a a mature woman who is clearly very sexually active, and and she she has no qualms about it. She has you know is comfortable enough to be uh, open with her desires, no matter who's in the room. She wouldn't shame right. if her assistants were there and they saw the whole thing. They they've seen more probably. They they know how the drill goes. Um. And so I, I think I appreciated that. Again, I can't relate to that. <laughs> I don't think I would ever be like that when I, when I get to be that age. But there's a part of me that admires someone who is that, um, um, that bold. Right. Um, their desires and just saying, you know, clearly I want you or I want this to happen. And, you know, if you're down, then let's do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and also just with the background info of knowing that 
uh, her character was probably much more exaggerated than it ended up being. Mm -hmm. And she helped them pare that down. I think uh, she probably was very well aware. She didn't want to come off as being just some cartoonish, loony, crazy, you know, but of the joke. Kruger. Uh, Yeah, yeah. She didn't want to be like that. She she was, and I thought that they struck a nice balance because, yeah, in a sense, it was kind of a joke that Marcus ended up sleeping with Lady Eloise, especially because he thought he was going to get something out of it and nothing came from that whatsoever. Right. Um, And, you know, and he was kind of haunted by that. He was like, oh my gosh, I slept with her and I don't want to admit it. Um, But, I, you know, I appreciated that even though it was kind of comedic and she was purring and, you know, whatever, she was, the character was very serious and she was nothing to be played with. And you can almost understand how she could pull somebody like mm. Marcus. Because, I mean, she wasn't no, she wasn't no slouch. No, she wasn't. She wasn't new to this. She, you know, she had games and, you know, she she could pull them young. She could pull them old. And it was her, it everybody knew that. Everybody talked about her in that way. Like, she, this is what she does. I think uh-huh. yeah, it's just. It and I don't like, think she cared. She was like, yes, no. this is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't care at all. So I I think I appreciated that. Um, and it ended up being kind of an iconic role for, for Eartha Kitt. Um, from that time on, at least again in. In our generation, she was, you know, she was that. She was, she was Marcus, darling. Yes. <laughs> she said, she said, <laughs> um, welcome to Lavender Hill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Oh, I, said, I was like, who says Lavender Hill like that? <laughs> I love it. Um. You know, one of the things to me that kind of stood out um, that didn't age well, but then actually um, hearing a bit from the director about the choices that were made made me understand a little bit more, but I still didn't like it, was um, (laughs) some of the objectification of women that was, um, you know, that that was sprinkled all throughout the Mm -hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Again, this is the 90s. It's a product of the 90s, so uh, that's bound to happen. Again, this is a film that was made by men, um, you know, starring men. So uh, the way that they look at women or the way that they regard women, there is going to be some level of objectification there. Um, you know, they had this device where Marcus, um, would look at these women's feet and determine whether or not he wanted to continue dealing with them. Yeah. So like Leela Rashad's character, he uh, he uh, uh, slept with her and then afterwards pulled the covers up and saw that her feet were jacked up and he was like, uh, I gotta go. Yeah. And then with Jacqueline, they slept together and then after he pulled the, cur- the covers up, saw that her feet were pretty and he like gave her a pat on the back. Right. <laughs> Oh, right. right. You passed the test. Um, and I didn't like that. But then I read that um, Reginald Hudlin said that, um, you know, drawing inspiration from, from different places, he knew somebody who was 
so picky. And I don't know if this was an exaggeration or not, but the way he described it was he's so picky, he would even look at the back of, of a woman's teeth to decide whether or not he wanted to continue no, um, dating her. <laughs> you know, so he was he was that picky. So he decided to, instead of doing the whole back of the teeth thing, it was feet. He wanted to show just how how superficial and how um, picky Marcus can be. Um, and so the fact that he looked at, um, what's her name? I think Chrissy is, is the name of Lila Rashad's character. He looked at her feet, looked at Jacqueline's feet. We never saw him look at Angela's feet, though. Right. And so that was supposed to symbolize that this is this is a real relationship. This is actual. This is true. It's not, it's not superficial. Um, so understanding that, I get it. But I still was just like, really? I'm sitting up here looking at women's feet. Like, can we not? And again, you know, how many men have, you know, taken that? I'm sure there were men that were that were superficial before this, of course. Boomerang didn't start it. But, right. you know, <laughs> just I, I wonder how many men took that and ran with it and decided that they were going to put women through crazy tests. Like, mm-hmm you know, whether or not her, her toenails were polished. Yeah. In general, even from the, uh, the women in the um, waiting room to audition for things and how, in general, how they talked about women, it was just problematic. It was, yeah. Yeah. So the objectification definitely was visible. I don't even think, I don't even think they thought about it. Like you said, written by men, this is these are male thoughts. So, and that's what dri- drove the narrative. Yeah, and you know, and it also was aided by where they set this this whole film. You know, they're they're in this marketing company, you know, for for beauty brands. So, yeah, they're going to have models, and the models are there to be objectified. They opened with um, Jeffrey Holder's character. He's showing him his latest commercial idea for some kissable lipstick or whatever. But you see these women with fruit. Sucking oh on God. a banana. Like, yeah. Sucking on a banana yeah. and licking on cherries and stuff. And what is that supposed to look like? Like, you know what you're doing. Um, the very, very sexually suggestive activities with fruit. and. It's just like, is this necessary? I, I mean, yeah, okay, great. This established that this particular character is out there with his ideas. You, if you give him free reign, this is where he's going. Um, yeah. But we didn't need that. We, we, we actually didn't actually need that. Right. I don't think. Um, and I think if this, if this film were to be done today, um, either that would not fly anymore, or you know, which I'm not opposed to, it'd be flipped. If, we're, if you're okay with objectifying women, let's objectify men. Yeah, I don't, I don't, and that's what I would say hasn't really changed. I think that, that that would still be in. I think that would still be in. I think though people are more cognizant about homophobia and transphobia and, um, you know, racism on screen, 
I feel like that, like the the way in which women are portrayed on screen, it hasn't really gone through the same editing. So mm. that's just my yeah. Concern. I think I think uh, yeah. I agree. Objectification of women definitely would remain. I'm not sure about that kissable commercial. That I think <laughs> that might have gotten edited out, but other ways for sure, the message would have been loud and clear that you know women are to be uh looked at and objectified on the other hand um you know you have Jacqueline who seemed to be um you know yet another character to be sexually objectified um and that's certainly how Marcus perceived her when he first saw her you know you had that that shot where she's turning and her hair is flipped and you know the, the camera zooms in on her and, and you can see the fullness of her body and blah, blah, blah. And Marcus sets his sights on her. Um, but you realize she's in full control. She sees him when he sees her. And, yeah. you know, he yeah. thinks that he's picking her up, but she's like, okay, how am I going to pick him up? Um, it was also interesting that <laughs> Jacqueline is Marcus's boss yet nobody's saying anything about this whole power dynamic and whether or not it's appropriate to be sleeping with your boss. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's I was something I said. That. Yeah, that is something I said. I'm like, why would you sleep with your boss? Like, I literally said that out loud. Like, mm. How is that okay? Why are you okay with this? Um, why is everybody okay with this? Uh, and then she, but, um, and she herself perpetuating the gossip at work the leader of the gospel at work and and she still as a black woman still has her job like that's just i i don't know yeah that's amazing yeah because because not only that she still has her job he's the one that had to take a couple weeks off because he couldn't handle the breakup and the gossip that was going around right It, it really affected him and she was just like um yeah why don't you take the time off no, why don't you go to HR <laughs> right. and, exactly. and figure out your severance package exactly. ladies. It wouldn't it wouldn't fly. Like, but, that's um, not that's not something that could happen. Especially a woman would. in leader, a black woman in leadership. No. They they looking for a reason, okay? <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that might have been a little um a little fantasy. Maybe that's the science fiction that, yeah. <laughs> that some of these critics were referring right, to. The right. fact that she could be in that position and be and and feel comfortable enough to think that she could get away with behavior that I'm quite sure many men, particularly white men, have gotten away with for years. Um, even though she, you know, clearly the character was supposed to be written in a way that she kind of um, acts like a man, so to speak, but women who are in those positions of power they know they know how to act like a man quote unquote and how to act like a woman quote unquote they know the limitations of acting like a man you can't get away with it you can't get away with sleeping with your employees <laughs> no sure can um but yeah the 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 sexual confidence um that she brought i what i appreciated that because you don't see that every day. Um, and the fact that she was able to go toe-to-toe with Marcus, um, you know, it, it was almost like they were competition. But 
the way that they flipped it a bit and Marcus ended up in what would be considered more of the feminine kind of role. He developed feelings for her. He actually cared about her. I think he even thought that he might have been in love with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not, not appreciating her, you know, being inconsiderate or, you know, he was mad when she stood him up for their date and, and he's worried about her and she was supposed to fly back into town and she, she said nothing. Um, you know, and then her coming to, to his house and just like, oh, well, you know, this would be soft with that. And it was for that moment, but then, <laughs> but then she got up and left and left $200 on the counter and he was just like, uh, I feel you. I think that Jacqueline was a mixed bag. I think that there were some things that maybe were a bit cringeworthy, but um, there were other things that um, that kind of worked, and it would be interesting to see how this character would be um, would play out today. You know, if they were to do um, a straight up remake of Boomerang. Please don't. <laughs> We're okay. Let us hold on to this. This is great. Like, let us hold on to it. You want to take Boomerang through the test, the Dorsey Flowers test? Yes. Yes, let's do that right now. All right. All right. So, y'all know that the Dorsey Flowers test is a two-step process, but it's it's a few more steps than that. Um, The first step um, is just to establish if these characters are black and female. Do we have black and female characters? Sorry, do we have black female characters in this film, regardless of age, sexual orientation, trans identity, disability, religion, or nationality, whether in live action or animated film? So uh, do we have characters who are black women portrayed by black women? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yep. All right. So now moving on to step two, which is slightly more involved. Um, first of all, are there at least two named black female characters? Yes. Yes. Uh, we have several. Uh, do they talk to each other? They do. They do. Yeah. Do they talk to each other about something other than a man or a non-black female character? No. No, they don't. I've, they they talk to each other. Even when Angela and Jacqueline was talking, they started talking about Marcus. Um, they I don't see them having any conversations other than about a man. Well, okay, that's true. What about though, um, Strage and Jacqueline? Because then they talk about the campaign and how Strange was like, I, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And Jacqueline was like, they're going to do this. And At, I better see you in the whatever, was that wherever a conversation? they were That wasn't a conversation. She went to her car and, and Jacqueline knocked on the window and said she would sue her, basically commanding her. There was no reply back. Strange didn't make a reply back. She rolled the window up halfway and told the driver to go. Like, it wasn't a conversation they had. 
okay. Did they talk at all after that? No. <laughs> I don't see them. We don't see them talk post that at all. Okay. I tried, y'all. <laughs> okay, so no one... None of the black female characters talk to each other about anything other than a man or a non-black female character. Um, are any of the black female characters primary? Yes. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, do any of these black female characters have agency? Do they have the ability to make their own choices? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a... That's Jacqueline for sure. <laughs> Strange too. Strange, I mean, even though she was commanded to do the the commercial, she did it the way she wanted to. Yeah. I feel like all the women really really had um the ability to make their own choices. Lady Eloise. Mm-hmm. Angela. Even Angela. Yeah. You know, she wasn't putting up with Marcus coming back and saying, you know, I'm a changed man, I owe it all to you. <laughs> Right. Ezra came back with that slap. <laughs> and even um, her relationship with um, uh, Gerard, she, like, That's right. yeah, she definitely held her own, even in that relationship. Like, from the moment they were trying to choose what to eat. To meeting his parents, you saw her step up in that way. So, and she was very clear: "We're just friends." Yes, like, I'm not interested in it. Absolutely. Her. Um. Okay. Survival. Does a black female character live until the end of the film? Yes, absolutely. No one dies in this film. I don't believe. Nope. Um. Okay. Next, are the black female characters non-stereotypical? What do you think? <laughs> uh, I don't know how to answer this because I almost want to answer this as a group. As a group, no, because there's so many different types of black women that appear in this film that you don't come away with a stereotypical idea of what black women are. Um, but as each character, uh, I don't know. I almost want to say maybe the character of Angela is non-stereotypical. Mm. Um, because although she, although she's painted as like the sweet, um, you know, girl next door, again, the one that, that you don't necessarily see at first because you're too busy looking at a Jacqueline type character, um, she's not waiting to get chosen. You know what I mean? She's, she's taking initiative herself. Um, and before, before Marcus even takes an interest in her, she's kind of dealing with Gerard, the 
you know, trying to decide if she wants to be with him or not, deciding that she does not want to be with him, but is okay with being his friend. And then even when she's with Marcus um, and they start kissing and they're, you know, like, well, okay, what are we doing? And she was like, you know, well, friends kiss. So it was, you know, it was clear that she was, she was, um, she was okay with this. She wanted this to happen. She wanted to, um, to start something with Marcus. She was interested in him. So it was evident that she liked him from first meeting him. And he pushed her off on Gerard. She was trying to talk to him. I think she was interested in him. I think also Jacqueline was trying to trying to get them to work together. Jacqueline introduced them. I think she, she you could see it was evidence she liked Marcus. Um, but I think she played the best. Fr- she played the friend role. She tried to, you know, push Jacqueline. Um, with getting Jacqueline's ear about Marcus, getting Marcus's ear about Jacqueline. I think she was playing the the good girl role very well. I I don't I think the kiss that happened was something she wanted. I I don't I think she wanted it for a while. Like so um I I feel like I can see stereotypes in each of the characters. Um, so I would say that these characters, these black female characters were stereotypical. That's just how I feel. So even, so you would even say Angela is stereotypical. Um, yes. And I say that because, her general makeup as a character is typical in in the um the uh playing like the best friend role but you really like the person like i think that all of her moves were intentional it's- well i mean i think but i would say we got to remember stereotypical for black women so like I would say, a stranger might be considered a stereotypical role because black women are are um, are regarded as being um, uh, very sexual, very sexual beings, uh, and so that kind of plays into a certain stereotype. Um, you know, even Jacqueline can be seen as like quote unquote strong black woman. Um, because she's in such a powerful position um, and she, she's such an alpha woman. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if I would say that Angela being, being that, that kind of best friend position, I don't know if that's a stereotype that's necessarily applied to black women. I think it is, especially in film. Um, I think what makes this unique is that Halle Berry is a beautiful woman usually what happens is they try to make that best friend something's wrong with her okay she she might be overweight she you know some she might be nerdy she might be I think they didn't push it that far but that type of stereotype around certain black women does exist I don't know 
I feel like that's that's a trope that definitely is is applied for sure. I don't know if that's applied specifically to black women. So I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Um, so, but even, not there even are- if you're saying that Angela herself is not a stereotypical role, then all of the other women are. This That means that this part of the test, the answer is no. Or the answer is, are the, are the black characters non-stereotypical? The answer would be no, because black the majority of the black female characters are stereotypical. Okay. Okay, so we're saying no on the non-stereotypical depiction. Okay, almost done with the, with the Dorsey Flowers test, y'all. Hang in there. Last question. Does a black female character have historical, political, or social relevance? What do you say? I would say no. I would say I would no. say no as well. Yeah. I almost want to say yes just because the film still holds up, but no. Yeah. The film, I think, has social relevance because of what it's been over the years. But the black female characters do not. So I agree. All right. All right. So no bonus points this time as the film does not have a black woman director or writer. So we will add this up. Okay, we have our total with a grand total of five points on the Dorsey Flowers test. Boomerang passes, but with major correction. <laughs> Yay! Boomerang. <laughs> uh, well, nice. that, that was all right. I, I was afraid that maybe it might fail you know sometimes you look back at a film again a film that's that's a, a classic people people love the film then you go back and you realize oh no this is a mess yeah so it wasn't that bad and regardless what it means to black film is is priceless so um yeah, I'm glad it exists, and I'm glad I have a copy of it. I don't even have a DVD player anymore, so I probably need to figure that out. But um, <laughs> I definitely have. I definitely have the soundtrack. I will never get rid of it. So it is is definitely a part of my life. All right, well, All right. We, we made it to the end of the show, and we would love to hear your voice contributed to this conversation you can email us at young black and brave at gmail.com we are also on social media so follow us on twitter at ybb podcast and on facebook and instagram at young black and brave anything else portia no, I think that's it. I'm glad that we got a chance to watch this again. It was great. Me too. Well, you guys, I hope you guys are staying happy and healthy out there. And until next time, stay brave. Peace.